ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales as well as the tales of his family in and around professional wrestling. Here we are in the afterglow of the one-year celebration. We had giants and chisels in Japan and so much last week, but here we are, and we have a special one for this week. Without any further ado... Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, this is a special one this week. Yes, it is. I mean, we're following a special one with another special one. I feel like this one is really going to be a really great program, very interesting for fans, and uh, interesting time in my life. Uh, things, A lot of things are happening in wrestling at this point, and I'm really looking forward to it. Got the horse all saddled up, and uh, I'd like to say let's just head right into it. Uh, uh, I want to go back and remind people that, that maybe didn't listen to the episode uh, in which my college days, wrestling, playing basketball in college, before I started wrestling, I actually wrestled a few times. And I have, and those matches were in the Tennessee Territory. Now, Tennessee Territory is a broad territory. It's a, it encompasses 12 states. They operated in 12 states. It's pretty amazing uh, how much territory they covered in the Pardon the pun, but the, I had matches in Memphis uh, in 68 when I was a junior in college. I had matches in Mobile, Alabama, down further south. I wrestled in Blytheville, Arkansas for my very first match, and I wrestled in Tupelo, Mississippi. So we're in four different states in which I had four matches when I was in college before I became a legitimate professional wrestler. So we're going back to Tennessee. And, and we not too long ago, we had Rob come and visit me in Florida. And this is one of those situations in which I said, Rob, I want to come up there and spend a couple of weeks in Tennessee and travel with you and work some shows. And I always wanted to see what working in other territories like. Uh, I've only been in the business for years, a year time now. And I've worked in Georgia. I've worked in Florida. I want to go see what kind of talent they have in Tennessee, how they run their business in Tennessee. And I've got that opportunity. And I fly into Huntsville, Alabama on a Friday night. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama is one of their regular towns. 
They run, it's such a large territory, they run three, sometimes four Friday night towns. It's amazing what kind of business and how far strung this territory is and how far the trips are for the boys and how many boys are there. A tremendous number of guys. Sometimes as many as 100 wrestlers uh, are employed in the Tennessee Territory. So I go into Huntsville, and Rob picks me up at the airport. Uh, we go to the matches. We get dressed to go to the ring. It's a six-man tag. I'm acclimated, and I am into what we do in Florida. And we're still a wrestling territory down there in Florida. And we got the Jack Briscoes and the Bob Roops, and that element is key. And uh, you don't have much blood, and it's just predominantly wrestling. And I start out to the ring with Rob, and I can't remember. I think we wrestled Don and Al Green, and maybe I don't remember who their their partner was, and I don't remember who Rob and I's partner was. But I remember going to the ring and the fans handing me knives and uh, and 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 pieces of steel and brass knucks and 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 they're trying to hand them to me, and I'm like, what? No, no. What? What's that for? And, and they were all saying, you're going to need it. You're going to need it. And I was like, what do they mean by this? Right. So I get to the ring. I've got a double handful of gimmicks that's been handed to me by the crowd. And I throw them in the corner and Rob looks down there and he goes, what you got? And I said, they gave all this to me, man. I said, what, what is it? What the heck is going on in the, in this match? You know, well, he goes, hey, you know, it's a little wild here. And he takes his foot and he kicks the stuff out into the floor, out, out off the apron and out into the floor. So I like, well, okay, here we go. So we get in the middle of this match and there is no wrestling in it at all. I mean, it's like a brawl. It's a battle from the very beginning there's five guys. Everybody in the ring is bleeding but me. And I'm looking around and I'm going, what in the world is this? You know, I, it's so far removed from what we were doing in Florida in this time frame. I go back to the dressing room afterward and Nick is there. This happens to be one of his favorite little towns. And Nick Goulas, uh, along with Roy, on the Tennessee Territory. And Nick comes to Huntsville. He likes it's his baby. I would uh, most people tell me that's the way they describe it. This is Nick's baby, and so Nick, I, I don't know Nick very well. I have obviously I've met him a few times in growing up, and being with Roy, and we would go to the a Nashville office, and he would say, "Hey, Nick, this is Ron," and you know we spoke, but we never dealt in a business relationship. This is our first time to be in a business relationship. I'm actually wrestling for him and he comes in the dressing room and he comes right straight to me and he he starts screaming at me and he goes hey boy he goes and he talked like hey boy you got a fire you ain't got no fire out there he's going to tell me how to work how to wrestle and now he's an owner here and and so all the guys in the dressing room, they get quiet. You know, it's like, geez, they, they never heard him. I guess he goes off on guys, and uh, that's, 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 that's standard for Nick. That's the way people expect him to treat guys and to treat people because he has a habit of doing that. But I don't have, I'm not working for him. I'm not in a position to where I'm employed by him and I need to have these matches. So, I go right after him. I just say, hey, I start right into him. And I say, Nick, 
You have never had on a pair of wrestling tights in your life. What do you know about this business? How do you, what do you think you, who do you think you are to tell me how I'm supposed to wrestle? The guys are just looking at each other. I see them in the dressing room. They're like, wow, please, nobody's ever done this to Nick. And he actually gets scared. I stand up and he backs up like, you know, like I'm going to do something to him. And I just said, I just said, you don't even leave me alone. I said, you don't need to talk to me at all about wrestling if you're going to try to teach me to do something that you have no idea what it's like to do. So it was, and then he goes and leaves the dressing room real quickly. Rob, Rob goes, oh, Ron, he goes, wow. <laughs> he goes, wow, man. He goes, he, you can't do that. You, 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 nobody talks to Nick like that. And I said, I don't know Nick, nothing, man. I, I know, I don't even, I, he's lucky I'm here and on this card. I said, I'm only here because of you, you know? So he, he we get in the car and we drive back to Nashville. That's where all the all the boys live is in Nashville. So it's a two-hour drive. We get there about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and he he says, "You need to jump in the bed." And I said, well, "Yeah, well, of course I'm going to bed." And the only and I don't even ask him where we are the next day. I just figure, you know, we're we're going to be working tomorrow night somewhere. I don't even so I go to bed, and uh, and next thing I know, it's he, he's he's shaking me. And it's night. I wake up and I look, it's dark. And I go, what do you want? And he goes, we got to go. And I said, what do you mean we got to go? Where are we going? And he goes, we got, we're on Memphis TV. And I said, Memphis, that's, that's, that's 250 miles or so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's about three and a half hours, almost four hours. He said, we need to get up. We need to get going. We need to get going. The TV is live from 1030 until 12 o'clock. So I crawl out of the bed and I get my stuff and we start down to Memphis. We get there and it's pretty nasty weather. And the only people that show up for the whole hour and a half live television is me and Rob and Sputnik Monroe and Norvell Austin. It's like, gosh almighty, they come and then they come and say, look, guys, uh, here's the situation. Uh, Y'all the only four guys we got. So we're going to have a two out of three fall tag and you guys are going to do the whole hour and a half. I was like, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean we, we're the only match on, on an hour and a half television program? He goes, yeah, that's basically it. You know, we need to get the time in with you guys. So we go out there and we work two out of three fall match with Monroe and Austin. Now, Sputnik, still a great star in Memphis. He's still a huge star in Memphis. Um, Norvell Austin is a, is a black guy. He's got uh, black hair, and he's got that, just like Sputnik, he's got that skunk white in, his, in the front of his forehead because Sputnik had black hair, and he always had this white mesh of hair that kind of ran down the middle of his head that looked like a skunk. And uh, so Norvell, had a, he had a skunk haircut like, like uh, Sputnik did, and his hair was dyed the same way. So, they, and uh, the way Sputnik liked to work is he's getting a little older now. So Norvell is the worker. Norvell is the guy that does ninety percent of the work. Uh, Sputnik comes in and gets the heat, and then when there's a hot tag made, he tags Norvell. And when we come in to grab Norvell and to get Norvell to make a comeback, Sputnik could scream at him. He say, "Run, Norvell, run, run!" It's 
So Norbell would take off running, round and round the ring, round and round the studio, out the back door and in the back door. It was like, what in the heck is this all about? We couldn't catch him to do anything to him. So we go back and forth, and we go through this for three straight falls, and we get to the end of this hour-and-a-half television. Uh, survive it. And I'm so blown up at the end of it. We do a short interview, Rob and I, and during the course of the early part, part of the program, more Norvell and Sputnik have a, an interview. So we go out. I go uh, outside the door, and, and Lance Russell is there doing the program. It's at the end of the show, and he has a little bit of time left. So I step outside this door into the lobby of the main lobby area of this of the WHBQ. I believe that's the call call letters of that, that station. Uh, yes, it is. Same station that my dad got this program set up way back in the 60s in 1958, got on WHBQ and started this hour-and-a-half deal, one of the few hour-and-a-half wrestling programs ever in the country. And it being live, it was a fantastic, phenomenal success, watched by thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and so I go out and in the lobby area, there's only the girl sitting at the reception desk and she's filing her fingernails. Uh, nothing to do, nobody in the lobby. And I hear Lance on, in the studio, he stops the referee and he says, hey, hey, we've got a little time here. Go on there and get Monroe and Austin and Norvell and bring them back in here. And so... The referee comes out behind me. He goes running down the hallway to the dressing room, and then he comes back. I see him go in the door, and he goes to the microphone. Now they're live, and he says, and Lance says, well, where are they? And the referee says, uh, Monroe, and that, and he uses the N-word. And I hear it. I'm like, oh, my God. Gosh almighty. Oh, and the girl sitting, I'm still standing in the lobby. I can hear what's went on in the studio. And all of a sudden she just, just throws her pen up in the air and the switchboard lights up. You know, it's like, wow. It's it. I'm thinking they've lost their television. They're finished. Memphis is done. You know, it's just an unbelievable thing to have happened. And so I go in the dressing room. I tell Rob what went on in the studio, and he's like, oh, man, are you kidding me? So, And then I'm sitting there trying to catch my breath, and he says, uh, you know, hurry up, Ron. I go, what do you mean hurry up? He goes, hurry up. We, we, we got to go to – we got another TV to do. And I said, oh, are you kidding me? Where? He said, Chattanooga. I said, oh, man, Rob, that's 400 miles. We've got to go back through Nashville and over – uh, interstate, whatever that interstate, I think it's 20 or 25, whatever the number is, it goes from Nashville into Chattanooga. And out we go off running to Chattanooga. It's like, wow. We started at 4.30 in the morning now. We've gone down to Memphis. We've worked uh, two out of three fall, whole hour and a half television program. Now we're in the car. We're headed to, to Chattanooga. And he says, we can stop and have a real quick meal, but we've got to make that TV. And it was like at 4.30 or 5. I was like, gosh, man, this is terrible. So we get to the TV, put on my boots, and Rob goes, uh, 
You know, we go out to the ring. I can't remember who we wrestled on television, but I do remember when we finished the match. I come back in and and I'm huffing and puffing again. I was like, "Wow, man, this is this is one heck of a day." And and uh, he says he he gives me the elbow. Uh, hey, hurry up! I go. Wait a minute. What do you mean, hurry up? He, uh, where? Where? I start right there. Where? Where are we going now, man? He goes. We, we're on the house show. We're, we're right here. But he says, if we hurry, we can get down there and maybe grab a little food and we can get over there in time to, to you know, to, have, to to work the match. I was like, are you kidding me, man? I, I'm sort of counting it up now. We, we How many minutes we've worked and how many miles we've driven and all that. So we go in and we're getting dressed to work in the house show that night. And he and I'm complaining. You know, I'm like, this is crazy, man. I go, you know, in Florida, we make one television and, and they send the tape everywhere to all the major cities. I said, when it, what, what century are you guys in here, man? This is not the way you should do TV. You got all these live TVs. And he, he, he says, Hey, he says, quit complaining. I said, he says, we could be in Birmingham TV tonight. And I said, are you serious? I said, <laughs> what time is that TV? And he said, 11 PM. And he goes, it's in central time. Now we're in Eastern time. He goes, we crossed the time zone and we, we got an extra hour. He said, we can make it there in four hours from here. I'm like, are you, gosh, Rob, it's, you're crazy. And he goes, well, Ron, if we were in Birmingham TV, he said, when we finished TV, we'd still have to drive two and a half hours home to that, to Nashville. And I said, ah, dog. So right then I kind of started talking to him. I said, Rob, I don't know if I'm going to last here very long in this territory. If this is what weekends and what your Saturdays are like, and this kind of stuff is just, it was just so different than what we were doing in Florida. It was just amazing to me. When you started out in Georgia and then when you went to Florida, what did you heard about the Tennessee territory? Obviously your family's involvement with there makes it so that it's not like it's a stranger territory to you. But when you're in the locker room amongst guys who you're now working with, what are they saying about the Tennessee Territory? Well, Tennessee Territory had all kinds of different rumors about it. And, and you know, we spoke about that. That's totally an instant of my first impression of and, and my first run-in with Nick. And a lot of guys had that run-in. I remember sitting one time in a dressing room with Jack Briscoe and talking about Tennessee. You know, and I asked Jack, I said, uh, you ever worked Tennessee? And he said, oh, heck yeah, Ron. He says, certainly did. Sure did. You know, and I said, uh, well, how how was it? And he goes, he said, uh, well, he goes, Ron, I went in, I drove into Tennessee in a Cadillac. And he said, I rode out on a Greyhound. <laughs> and I was like, I said, what do you mean, Jack? And he said, they broke me. He said they, they, they didn't use me right. He said uh, Nick didn't pay me well. He said they didn't seem to like my talent. They didn't think I was going to be good. He said, I don't know what happened to me there, but he says, I never, never got a chance. I never got pushed. He goes, and that was the story with a lot of Tennessee guys. I mean, you were had to be in a clique there. It was kind of like if you were tight with Nick, you got to work Birmingham, and you got to work Huntsville, and you got to work Chattanooga. Uh, those were his babies, kind of. And if you were tight with Roy, you got to work Memphis and Louisville and the western side of the territory, where there was usually better money, to be quite honest with you, than Nick's side. But... It was a strange place to work, didn't have a very good reputation. Like I said, 
Sometimes they had as many as 100 wrestlers there living in Nashville. A lot of those were Mexican wrestlers, uh, guys that they didn't pay anything to, didn't, didn't pay them well at all, and they starved people to death, and people would just leave on them without a notice. Uh, it was not a good reputation so far as the Tennessee Territory. Now, if you're there regularly and if you're in the clique, uh, if you were one of the guys that were on top, you're going to make some darn good money in that territory. But a lot of guys, most of those hundred guys that are uh, available as in the, for that office are, are not making money, and they're, they're starving to death a lot. Before this day, what was the previous longest day you had in the wrestling business? About the longest day I can remember. I had not gone to Australia yet. Uh, I hadn't experienced that. But uh, in Georgia, you just had basically, well, you had TVs. You had a making TV, live making TV. You had a live Columbus TV, and you had a live Atlanta TV. So on Saturdays, you could work two TVs in Georgia, but there's not much distance between Atlanta and Macon or Atlanta and Columbus. They're, you know, you're talking about 100 to 120 miles as compared to 250 almost to Memphis. And then across the state, 400 miles to Chattanooga. I mean, you're racking up some miles and you're spending a lot of time in the car. So I never experienced this type of distance in travel uh, but that's because Roy had developed such a expansive territory. It was in he operated within twelve states. Uh, you just you had long, long trips, and it was a worse situation. Uh, Knoxville had a live TV. We could have ended up working Knoxville. Could have just as easily been sent rather than Memphis be sent to Knoxville early on the day on Saturday and then down to Chattanooga's TV in the afternoon and then work the Chattanooga house show. Or worse, go down to Chattanooga, work the TV, and get sent back to Knoxville to work a house show. They just really had no organization to all of this the expansive territory and and it made it difficult and it didn't operate as as well as it should have in my opinion you're obviously there to spend a week or so with rob but at any point are you thinking you want to go visit your grandfather well my grandfather comes to memphis okay and i said nick's babies were birmingham and chattanooga and huntsville roy's baby was nashville and louisville and he showed up in those towns. So on the Monday night after the TV, we're off on Sunday. Well, on Monday, we go back to Memphis to wrestle. And we're going to wrestle in a first time ever for me. We're going to be an eight-man tag. Uh, it's going to be me and Rob and Tojo Yamamoto and Bearcat Brown. Now, for fans out there that don't know, Tojo Yamamoto is about a five-foot six-inch, little, roly-poly, big-bellied Japanese who wears the wooden shoes. And I'm just trying to describe him here. He got the bald head. Uh, he, he is, he, in his career, most of his career has been spent in Tennessee because he got over so fabulously as a heel. And he has this great ability as a heel to be sneaky, and he would bend over and and put and hunch his shoulders and sneak up from you behind, and oh, it was like fans just hated him. And then once they turned him babyface, 
he was one of their biggest baby faces. They put him with Rob a lot. They like to put him with young talent. There's Jerry Jarrett there as a young guy. There's Eddie Marlin there as a young guy. Uh, there's uh, Tommy Gilbert as a young guy. They've got the perfect group of young baby faces to throw in there with Tojo. And Tojo, the baby faces, the young boys get the heat, and Tojo makes the big comeback. Uh, it worked out very well for him. So I work in this eight-man tag, and it's, it's, a, it's a good match. We work against uh, Spudnik and uh, the Black – they call him the Black Panther. It's, it's, uh, it's Norvell Austin, basically, uh, and Don and Al Green, and they had a manager named Sir Clements. Uh, Don and Al Green, uh, just a little description of those two. Al Green is a, is a guy that's pretty large, but he's out of shape. He's not a great wrestler. He's, he's not a great talent in the ring, but Don is a total opposite. Don Green is a, looks like a wrestler. He's built like a wrestler. He has great movement in the ring. He is the general. He is the guy that makes it happen for that team. Sir Clements is a little small, exactly like you would imagine a Sir Clements, a little funky hat, like he's from England somewhere, and uh, and got and pretty good on the microphone. So that's a pretty good combination. But something else happens that night that really gets my attention is we have the eight-man tag, and then they have a a first time ever triple chance two ring. Battle Royal. Uh, and this is Jerry Jarrett's invention, his creation. Now, Jerry is, he starts working with Roy uh, as a, he's a referee. Uh, Roy's secretary is named Christine Jarrett. Uh, and that's Jerry's mom. Jerry gets a job as a referee for the company. And then he rides with Roy from Nashville to Memphis a lot. And Roy picks his brain. He's a young guy, but he's very creative. And, and he, he comes up with these great ideas. So I'm in there, and I notice, when, obviously, when I go to the ring, that there's two rings side by side. And it's called a triple chance, two-ring battle royal, because everybody starts in ring one. You're thrown out. Of, everybody's thrown out of ring one into ring two. Last man in ring one stay, waits until everybody is thrown out of ring two, except for one man. They put those two guys against each other, and whoever wins gets the money for the battle roar for the two ring battle roar. A great concept. Uh, going to see a bunch of those. In fact, I'm going to do a, quite a few of those myself. When I become a promoter and I start running business, uh, I thought it was a tremendous event. But something happens in here. We're, we're in the dressing room, and, and Sputnik asked me, he says, and if you think this, if you, people can picture this, Brian, you have two rings that are set side by side. They touch each other. But the ropes are just about 18 inches in from the edge of the apron on every ring. That just happens to be the way they're built. So that when you go over the top rope, you have a chance to land on a piece of an apron before you go straight to the concrete. Well, when you put two rings side by side, the expanse between the ropes is probably three and a half, close to four feet. And I'm in the dressing room and they're about to go into the ring for the battle royal. And Sputnik says to me, uh, he goes, uh, Ron, he goes, uh, you're big and tall. He says, do you think you could backdrop me from ring one into ring two? And I was like, whoa, 
are you serious? And he goes, yes, yes. And now Sputnik is, he's an older guy, but he's still got a lot of heart in him. And then he, he wants to, he wants to be the show. He is the man in Memphis and has been for many, many years. And he wants to be a spotlight of some kind. One, uh, So, so I say, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. So, I get ready for the spot, and you have to be careful. There's 30 guys in this two-ring battle royal, so you you can't throw somebody up in the air because they'll have a land on somebody else. So you have to be careful when you're going to do something like this maneuver. You got to have somebody's out of both rings so that so that you're not going to send him over those ropes uh, upside down and land on somebody or whatever and hurt somebody. So. So I shoot him in the ropes, and I'm tall, and uh, and he he's a he's a shorter guy. He's not he's probably six feet or a little less than six feet, and he comes charging at me, and he hits me kind of upright because he wants me to launch him, you know, and I'm taller than he expected me to be, and I didn't bend over for as far as he expected I was going to, and when he hits me. I don't really get under his body as well as I needed to. And I kind of get him up in the air, but I have to step back a little bit. And he goes high into the air, so high that I have time to turn around and watch. And he goes down under the top rope and over the second rope and hits head first like a dart stuck up in the ring. (laughs) It's like, I thought it killed him. It's this boom. And he just, his body just folded up. I was like, oh, my God, I've killed Sputnik. (laughs) I was like, so I had to go get him. He's just laying there. I think he's out cold. And I'm like, wow, this is terrible. And I climb out of the ring one and into ring two. And I get down there to grab him, like to see if he's conscious. And he looks up at me and he says, let's do it again. (laughs) So I. I pick him up, I shoot him across the ring. When he comes back this time, I get a little lower and I'm ready for him. I send that guy sailing. Wow, it was one of the most dramatic bumps probably ever in the history of two ring battle royals. He went from ring one all the way over into ring two on a backdrop. Uh, Guys were talking about it in the dressing room. Like, wow, that was absolutely crazy. They said, I thought you killed him. When he went in head first into the mat, he said, they, they all said, we thought he was done. It was over with. So, you know, a little bit of everything happened in, in this first two days, basically. I've been there two days. We've been all over the state of Tennessee. We've wrestled on two televisions. We've Now we've had an eight-man tag and my first ever two-ring battle royal, darn near kill Sputnik Monroe in the event. And uh, I'm going to be there a few more days. We're going to work other towns. We're going to work in Louisville. We're going to work in Chattanooga. Uh, we're going to wrestle against the Von Bronners in both of those cities. Though at that point, what we're recognized in that particular area is the World Tag Team Champions, the Von Bronners with Saul Wanegroff. Uh, great workers, uh, fabulous matches we had with them. Really, really good matches. I was very impressed with their talent. Uh, they're going to come to Florida not too long after this and spend some time in Florida. So I'm going to see them again. But uh, going to get to work with some different guys and uh, spend a good amount of time. Rob and I, plenty of time in the car to talk because when you're doing these kind of trips, you got nothing but time.
Sputnik was main eventing in Memphis when you were just a kid. What was it like working with him all these years later? It was a thrill. It was a thrill and an absolute honor. I mean, uh, I always loved Sputnik. I loved his talent and his ability in the ring and his, uh, and his, his ability on the microphone as well. Uh, and I was, you know, when you grow up as a kid, I, I remember him from the fifth grade. When I first time I ever saw Sputnik was in the fifth grade. And to be in the ring with him and to be actually wrestling against him is just so, it, it's kind of a, it, it, it's it's a real special feeling that you have when you when you finally get to get in the ring with uh, some of your childhood heroes. I get to do quite a bit of this in the next scoot in the next couple of years. I'm going to wrestle against guys that I have admired and seen for years and years, especially around when in 1970. By 1973, I'm starting to make my mark, and uh, I'm going to wrestle some of the biggest names in the sport. Uh, so. Sputnik, that night is a real thrill for me. Uh, Von Bronner, same thing. Uh, we've talked about way back uh, the uh, the match in uh, Georgia in which my dad wrestled Mario Galento in front of almost 40,000 people in the ballpark uh, there in, uh, in Atlanta. And the Von Bronners were on that card against my, my dad's uncle, Lester, and uh, I think Ray Gunkel. So, you know, I mean, uh, I have seen these guys all my life. Don and Al, I remember those guys when I was younger, uh, especially Don. He's been wrestling Don Green for quite a while. Uh, so it's a real pleasure and a real honor for me and, and kind of freaky to, to, to go out there and look across the ring at these guys and say, geez, I'm, I'm in the ring with them. We will return to the Tennessee Territory in just one moment. But first, this word about the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number seven, Terry Funk and Stan the Lariat Heads. Yesterday morning, one of the best podcasts in history was released. Not one, but two of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived will be live on the phenomenal two-hour Super Studcast number seven. Former NWA World Heavyweight Champion Terry Funk and WWE Hall of Fame inductee Stan the Lariat Hanson. They'll both join the stud. Hear the remarkable respect, friendship, and memories between these rivals at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Then get the fantastic one-hour rest of the story with all three live starting Tuesday, July 31st, free. That's three total hours of fascinating wrestling history for less than $3 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Saddle up for Funk, Fuller, and Hanson. There you hear it, Super Studcast number seven, Terry Funk and Stan the Larry and Hanson. Only you, Ron, could pull this off getting two of wrestling's all-time biggest superstars. The same show. I mean, what a packed episode. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, that's my that's my goal here. I, I really want to start doing that. I want to. I've got a lot of other people in mind. I want to follow these guys with the same caliber of guys, and uh, I and that, that is one of the benefits of being where I am and what I've done in my in my career in wrestling and and the people that I know and. It's it's pretty easy for me to talk to these guys and say, hey, would you like to do my studcast or my super studcast? And and they, you know, I, I've created friends, and I guess I have some people that you know feel like that uh, I'm worthy of it. And uh, so it's 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more of these type. Uh, I thought that I, I wanted to put them both together, but I felt like that maybe to separate them in this first two-hour program and give them each one a highlight uh, by themselves. And then hopefully maybe we can do something in the rest of the story that, that might uh, might have both of them somewhat involved. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, that's, a, that's a great show. And, uh, and, and it's a real pleasure to have those guys. It's an honor. I mean, uh, one of them's a former world champion, and the other one is probably one of the baddest son of a guns that ever walked on earth in uh, Stan Hansen. So it's, a, it's a really a pleasure for me to get those guys. We'll have more information about the Super Studcast at the end of this program. But, Ron, let's now return to Tennessee. I had asked you about Memphis and your grandfather, Roy, when do you talk to him? What do you talk about? What's it like when you do see him when you come to the Tennessee Territory here in the fall of 1971? Well, it's a little different. You know, I mean, uh, I mean lots of the stories that I told in the early part of the, the Studcast, the first five were basically all about Roy. And I'm a young boy. Uh, now I'm I'm a man. I've, I've, I've grown up considerably. Uh, I'm at 6'9", and I weigh probably 250 pounds or so at that point. And, you know, Roy is 5'8", and about 220 pounds, and I'm a foot taller than he is, and and he's, he's, he's a little, and I don't get to see Roy. I haven't seen Roy in many years at this point. I go to college. Uh, Roy lives in just south of Nashville uh, in a little town called Yorkville, just north of Memphis, and and he doesn't come. He only sees me play basketball one time in my life. I'm a junior in high school, and he happens to come to one of my best games that I have in the entire year, uh, and I, I think I was lucky that he came to the game, actually. But uh, this is maybe the first time I have seen Roy in in four years. So his first his first, his first thing, the impression is, wow, you know, he comes and goes, gee, you know, uh, you don't look like you used to, boy, you know, and <laughs> and, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a boy anymore, and I've grown quite a bit since he's seen me, so, and he's, Roy is a strange guy, Roy is a character, he spends a lot of time just making everybody miserable with the stuff he does to them. He's got this cane because he's crippled in one leg. His hip, he's, he's been bad for 30 years, and he probably wrestled on it 10 years after he should have quit. And he, he has an aluminum cane, and he whacks guys in the shins with it all the time, or in the back of the head, or across the back. I mean, he, and if he's not doing that, he has this little tie pin that has a, it looks like a little gun and he takes it off of his tie and he sits there and gets your attention where you're looking at it and he points it toward you and he shoots it. It sounds like a, a, a rifle going off. It's like, wow. Oh, what are you doing? I mean, it's like, he's just there to just make everybody miserable. You know, and guys avoid him. Uh, they, he comes in the dressing room and half the guys in the dressing room leave because they don't want him to do something to him because he's the owner. You can't hardly make a comeback on him and you can't smack him upside the head. And if you do, you better be careful because he's liable to go after you. You know, he's maybe he's at this point, he's probably 65 years old, but he's pretty salty still. And, uh, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, run away from a fight. 
but he treats me nice and he's polite to me, but I, it's a different relationship than we have the, the, the times I had seen him before. Uh, I believe now he's looking at me totally different than he, than he was back in those days. Uh, I don't know if I impressed him that night, if my work was that good or whether he liked that. I didn't have a chance to talk to him at all afterward. His, his, M.O. when he comes to Memphis, because I used to be a kid and make this trip with him, is he would come there to collect the money, to handle the matches, and he was never there for the main event, hardly. He would leave. So, And as a kid, he would give me what he called the bread. Uh, he would take, and they were doing big business back in those days as well. They would count their money and strap their money and he would fill up these big brown garbage bags. I'm um, not garbage bags, but uh, uh, grocery bags. Back in the old days, the old brown grocery bags, big bags. It would be two bags full of money. And he would hand them to me as a eight year, ten year old kid, and say, "Here, carry the bread, kid." You know. And I and I we'd go out the back of those buildings, and I was always concerned, like. Wow, I don't know how much money he's got here, but you know, what if somebody jumps us here or whatever? Uh, but I think he was pretty well prepared to take care of business, whatever might have happened there. But, but uh, it was really nice to see him. Uh, and I think my dad might have been there that night as well. He used to come, he lived some at that particular time frame in Nashville, and he might have come down from Nashville to, to see us as well. Uh, we're going to wrestle in the future quite a few times in, in Memphis with my dad, his partners, Rob and I, and uh, that's a great experience for us. But uh, but seeing Roy was absolutely wonderful, but uh, it was not as, as – as, it was a totally different uh, situation than it was when we were, when I was a kid. This is Memphis, but this, of course, is not the end of your trip to the Tennessee Territory. What was next? Yeah, well, actually, what I'd like to do is I want to explain to people kind of what a territory is like and the uniqueness of the Tennessee Territory. I'm going to end up going to Louisville. I'm going to end up going to, to Chattanooga twice. Uh, I've obviously been in Huntsville. I'm going to Memphis twice during this trip. Uh, I'm not going to work very much of the actual territory. The Tennessee territory that Roy established as a young guy in the 30s is massive. It, he operates, and still to this day, during this time frame in 71, they were operating matches in, in 12 states. They were operating in Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, Arkansas, Missouri, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, and Indiana. It's just unbelievable where they can run you there. They were operating sometimes five cities a night because they had all these wrestlers that lived there. They could utilize everybody, and if they did, they had enough talent to run five towns in one night. Uh, they had major towns that ran on the uh, Birmingham, Monster Town, uh, Memphis, Monster Town. They ran on Monday nights. Uh, bad nights, in my my opinion. I, I thought they would have done much more business had they run those major cities on a weekend, a Friday or a Saturday. But this is the way this territory had been run for many, many years. Uh, some of the areas I kind of told you earlier, Nick had a penchant for really being really hung up on Birmingham, Nashville, and Huntsville. 
Birmingham in particular because he was born and raised there. And Roy had discovered him as a young guy who put out cards for him that worked his way to being his partner in the business. That's quite a darn uh, stroke of luck for a guy like Nick Goulas to end up owning half of a wrestling company that Roy spent many, many years building. But Nick was a pretty good businessman, and he he took care of the part of the business that Roy was not able to take care of. Roy's penchant and his, his biggest uh, asset was the way he could handle wrestlers and the way he could knew wrestling and, and matches and finishes and angles and programs and being a booker kind of. And uh, that's what he was. And then he had to booker for both sides of his territory. Uh, so you've got this element... Uh, of major cities that the, that Roy and Nick together own. And that's basically the Memphis, Louisville, Evansville, Indiana, uh, Birmingham, Nashville, Huntsville, Alabama. And then they, and because their territory is spread so far, they have to allow people or find people to run towns for them that they can't go there and actually help promote or see how business is being handled to promote the event, but they need somebody in these smaller towns. For instance, Herb, Roy's brother, is in Arkansas and Missouri. He he runs towns like Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and and uh, Blyville, Arkansas, and uh, just just small little uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, small little towns along the Mississippi River, just on the west side of the river. Uh, Herb also, during this time frame, begins to train wrestlers. And he's going to train David Schultz. He's going to train Wayne Ferris, honky-tonk man. The, we're talking in WWE guys that are going to go, WWF back in those days, that are going to go to New York, going to become stars up there in New York. They're trained by Herb. Coco Beware gets to be a star in quite a few different territories. So, Herb is running these towns, and he's actually training some of these young wrestlers to get into the business. A lot of those guys are going to work for me. Schultz and Honky Tonk Man are going to work for me in southeastern and Knoxville. They're going to work for me in southeastern and Pensacola as well, and Continental. So, uh, they, so he's got Herb there based in Arkansas and Missouri. Along the Gulf Coast, he still has the Fields Boys. They're running everything along that Gulf Coast from Tallahassee all the way into New Orleans. So that puts them into Louisiana. They run Baton Rouge, and they run a few other towns in, in that area. Uh, their arrangement is with Herb, and their arrangement is with the Fields Boys, is they take 15% of the house. They call it a booking fee. They provide them with the talent, and then it's up to that local promoter to promote the matches and make things work. If he doesn't, they can him, and they find somebody else to run those positions. Over in Knoxville on the eastern side of Tennessee, they have the Kazanas. Uh, first it was George Kazana. Now it's owned by his brother, who is younger, John Kazana. I'm going to have a lot of experience in that town later on. Uh, I didn't get to go there and do TV. Uh, I end up on Memphis TV. Uh, I would have probably... Memphis TV was a tremendous TV. I do give them credit for that. They had Lance Russell, one of the very best, and they had a very good program, uh, one of the best in the country, no doubt. And that's what made Memphis such a phenomenal wrestling city. 
Uh, you had the Knoxville in Chattanooga. You had a guy named Harry Thornton that did the same type of deal, kind of ran locally there. And Nick went there on Saturday nights. That was their Saturday night town, a regular Saturday night town. And they did uh, great business in Chattanooga. It was a tremendous wrestling market. Knoxville, during this time frame, is a pretty decent wrestling market, too, because John Kazana relies on the Wright brothers, Ron and Don, a guy named Whitey Caldwell, who is a great babyface. And the Tennessee territory is full of so many great heels. That territory during this time frame is a tag team territory filled with fabulous tag teams as good as anywhere in the world. And they, they, they utilize them. Two out of three matches were tag matches. They had very few single matches. So that was unusual for me. I wasn't used to that. That was totally different than what they did in Florida at the time. Uh, another area of the, of the state of Alabama uh, that my cousin Jimmy and his daddy, Bill Golan, Bill's been working uh, f- and for the Fields, got Fields Brothers, running some towns in Louisiana, and uh, Nick calls him up and says, hey, would you like to come to Montgomery? I need somebody to run Montgomery and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Gadsden, Alabama, Columbus, Mississippi. Starts naming off a bunch of towns. So Bill and Jimmy, now Jimmy is starting to wrestle. He's a young talent, but Jimmy, in my in my opinion, is one of the greatest workers that has been has had very little acclaim about his ability. Jimmy has been a great worker all his life, and Jimmy goes and gets put on top by his dad, Bill, and uh, my brother's going to go in there and start booking for him in 1972. So they're now in Montgomery. Uh, they pay 15% booking. It's the same situation. For all of these different promoters, and it's all run in that type of manner that we're going to send you wrestlers, and you're going to pay that 15% booking commission. And uh, it kept them making money not only in the towns that they own, and they own all of them basically, but it it gives them the opportunity to make money in towns they wouldn't be able to run if they ran it in any other form. Bill Golden was in Montgomery. What about Phil Golden, who ended up running opposition in Kentucky? Phil Golden used to run up there in the what's called the Tri Cities up there in uh, Muscle Shows. I'm going to Florence, uh, Sheffield, and Muscle Shows in the northeastern part of Alabama. I think Philip was up there in the northeastern part of Alabama at that point, and Bill was down. In, in Montgomery. Now, Bill's relationship with us and my family is pretty remarkable. Uh, Jimmy's mother is my dad's sister. So Roy's daughter is Ruby. Her name is Ruby, and she marries Bill. And Bill gets into wrestling, starts off as a referee. Then he gets more knowledge. He turns him into a promoter. He does a little booking. Uh, he's a kind of like a guy that has a lot of ability and he's a hard worker. And Jimmy sees all this as he's growing up and starts picking up on a whole lot of it. And Jimmy is going in this same time frame. I was looking at some figures the other day that really I couldn't believe. Jimmy actually got to wrestle a world championship match before I did. And he's two years younger than I am. He wrestled Dory Funk Jr. in Montgomery. Six months before I wrestled Dory for the first time in West Palm Beach. 
So he gets a title shot, a world title shot before I get a world title shot. And uh, so then they run a they run a great business there. And this is you might find I think fans will find this interesting too. Uh, uh, the the walking tall story, Buford Pusser. Uh, Buford Pusser is a personal friend of Bill Golden's. And Bill, once the movie is made, Buford becomes a huge star, obviously. So Bill gets Buford online to go and referee matches for him. He referees Jimmy's World Championship with Dory Funk Jr. The referee is Buford Pusser of Walking Tall fame. So now Bill's drawing big money. He's running towns in Alabama in the area in which Buford is most famous. And he's taking advantage of this talent and this this name that has been developed from the movie business. And uh, pretty smart on Bill's part. And uh, and it just shows you uh, these guys are creative and they're using their heads and they're making money for Roy and Nick. Going back to your trip to the Tennessee Territory here in the fall of 71 with your brother Rob, what were your takeaways when you go back to Florida, when you leave there? What are you thinking? Are you thinking you ever want to return there? Is it an experience that was positive or negative? What are your thoughts at that time? That's a good question. Uh, my thought was really that the, there's, there's such a difference between the, the mindset of the owners of the two territories. Uh, you've got Nick and Roy who are filling their bottom rung of wrestlers with Mexicans and guys that can't work and just trying to have bodies there that they can send out to this area and that area. And, and, and their style is really, I, I was really not fond of their style. I thought that there was way too much blood and way too little wrestling. And uh, so I came away thinking that, you know, this is this is if I ever have a chance to run my own company, I, I don't want to go this that direction. I don't want to run it like they were running their business. I don't want the influence to be on on fighting and, and that type of stuff. I wanted the influence to be in wrestling. So when I go home to Florida, I'm 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 happy because I just it makes more sense to me what Eddie's doing and what dad is doing there than what Roy and Nick is doing in Tennessee. And even though these Tennessee houses are big, they're drawing good money. It's, it's amazing to me that they're filling these big arenas, but I keep thinking that like most of the time when you're doing too much and, and there's too much blood and there's too many, the, stipulated matches and Texas deaths and whatever they all are, then it's, it's not good for the future. It doesn't bode well for the future of your territory. And I kind of got that lesson out of this, that, that they're doing really good now, but what's going to happen five years down the road and what's going on in Florida in this time frame is just the opposite of that. There's a growth spurt that's beginning to happen. It's you can see it. I, I see the towns coming up. I see the, I see them bringing in the, uh, the 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 Mr. Wrestlings and uh, they they all these amateurs uh, uh, on on from all different levels. Uh, Ken Mantell and a lot of different guys that have these great backgrounds, these great wrestling backgrounds, and their focus is on wrestling so much that I feel like 
that they're going to grow. And boy, it turns out that they really are. Uh, I think I mentioned in the program uh, two programs ago about how they'd given a $500 guarantee, which had never been done in the business at that point, and how they started to get this influx of better talent. That influx is not going to stop for three years or four years or five years. Florida is going to be inundated with great wrestlers. And a lot of them are just that wrestlers. They're not the brawlers and they're not the, they're not the, the, the type of guys that, uh, that, that won't make it in Florida. I mean, you couldn't take uh, an Al Green and a Don Green and bring them to Florida and, and make stars out of them because they don't have enough wrestling ability. I was always impressed by the fact that Eddie and Dad were so much into actually having big-time wrestling matches and even putting a lot of babyface matches together, which is was unheard of back in those days. You didn't see that going on many places. You know, and, and then talking a little bit about the way Tennessee operated their territory, it it's not so different from a lot of other territories. If you look at Georgia during this same time frame, you've got a northern promotion – Promoters that own the, the Atlanta and uh, Augusta, uh, the northern part of Florida, and you have you have uh, Fred Ward down there that is in Columbus, Georgia, and Macon, Georgia, and and basically the southern part of the state. Uh, so there's divisions uh, even in Carolina. You've got promoters that are in small towns like Roanoke and places like that. Local promoters. It's a People, I think a lot of promoters, uh, maybe even Crockett looked at this. Uh, uh, promoters have, have seen that certain things about the Tennessee Territory made real sense. And the fact that there was such an expansive area and they were able to bring these local people and put those local guys in positions to help them to operate these towns so they didn't sit there and, uh, and didn't have opposition. Because if they sit there long enough, Somebody's going to say, well, I want to have my wrestling there. You didn't do that in Tennessee because Roy's going to come get you, you know, but uh, in a lot of other places, they, they, they would have been inclined if they weren't having matches on a semi-regular basis, then they would be looking to try to open up there themselves. Well, with that, Ron, it's time to wrap up another episode of the Studcast. Of course, we want to remind everyone that you can like Ron Fuller on Facebook, the page Ron Fuller the Tennessee stud. You could also follow the Tennessee stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at great Brian last. And you can hear me each week on the six Oh five super podcast at six Oh five pod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. You can get your stud cast super stud cast. And you could also take a ride through the stud store for stud photos and the popular stud cast t-shirt. By going to tnstud.com. Of course, like we said, that is where you can go for the studcast as well as the super studcast. You can go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only. $2.99. Don't forget, Stan Hansen and Terry Funk live together. Super studcast number seven available now. tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This one is a must listen for all fans. Tell your friends. Ron, what's coming up on the show next week? Well, next week, we're, we're going to go back to Florida, and we're going to go back to Florida to a, a different group of wrestlers than, than what is, has been there. So there's, like I said, there's a huge influx of new guys. And uh, I'm also going to 
besides West Palm is just cranked. Uh, I'm, I'm the local promoter there in West Palm, and it's doing tremendous business. We're going to have a, a first Cadillac tournament that's ever been held in that area. Uh, going to have some tremendous matches in West Palm. I'm going to be talking about my first champ, world championship match with uh, Terry, with uh, Dory Funk Jr., I'm sorry. And uh, we're just uh, going to spend some time in, in Florida again, and, and I'm going to start running little towns, spot shows. I'm going to start getting the education that I'm going to need to run my own company someday. I don't know at this point that that's what's going to happen for me, but it's going to be extremely helpful for me to learn how to run a small town and what's involved in actually trying to promote on a local level. So I think it'll be a great episode next week. And I want to thank fans, everybody that has, you know, gotten tremendous comments about our program number 52, the first anniversary special. Uh, And I really thank fans so much for your comments. And I hope you join us for the Super Stud cast. This next one's going to be really spectacular. And I just really appreciate everybody uh, getting uh, getting on board here and saddling up with me and taking these rides with me week after week. And just a pleasure and an honor to, to be here. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>